Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I can't even think of anything now to do say about Oliver, but he is precious. Um, precious young Oliver. Um, I want to take you to a passage this morning that will be very familiar to most of you. Um, and then I, I want to uh, just touch on some of the theological significance of the, of the narrative. And then I want to illustrate it. So real simple. Do that all in 25 minutes or less. Uh, the passage is John chapter 13. And the Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I'm going to stop there. Um, if, you, if you just look at this, these few sentences and approach them like a flat read, they're, they're really quite uneventful. But if you actually look at these events in context of what had happened before and what was happening after, they become an incredible picture for us. You see, when, when they got to this room just before Passover, Jesus' earthly ministry was done. It was over. No, 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 no more water walking. No more feeding the masses. No more miracles except for gluing an ear back on. Um, other than that, it was over. The teaching was almost over. It was all over. And, 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 and here they are. He's sitting around the food with those who were closest to him. And the Bible says that Jesus already knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus is sitting there and he knows that Peter will deny him. And he knows that in the hours that follow, every one of those guys at the table will abandon him in his greatest time of need. They'll abandon him like cowards. And so he's sitting with the betrayers and the deniers and the cowards. And the Bible says he loved them to the end. Jesus also knew that everything, all power had been put in his hands. Everything had been put underneath him. And the Bible says he 
He came from God and he was returning to God. Now I was thinking about this passage. How do you eat a meal when you know all of these things are going to happen to you at the hands of the people that you consider your closest? Think about a person that has hurt you. Someone that has said terrible things about you. Somebody that has dirtied your name, dirtied your reputation. Someone that knifed you in the back. Someone you trusted, but then they turned on you. Think about one or two of those people. And then think about sitting in a room with them. But you have all the power in the room. When you have all the power in the room, what do you do? What do you do? Do you get even? I think most of us would. You know, I'm going to set set the score right. I'm going to tell the truth. And you're going to find out that you're wrong and I'm right. That's what we're going to do. We're going to expose you for the snake in the grass that you are. That's what we're going to do. If I had all the power in the room, that's what I would do. But that's not what Jesus does. He has all the power in the room. And you know what he does? He washes them. He washes them. Feet are basic. They're not pretty. They're not ugly. They're just basic, literally very down to earth. Um, And we've all washed our feet a lot, and so we don't even think about it. But John captured um, this event, and, and he was able to see that that, that, that part of the fiber of what Jesus was doing is a down-to-earthness, but there's a tenderness and there's a love for the way that he cared for those whom he loved to the very end, even though they were deniers, betrayers, and cowards. After the meal, things were going to set in motion quite quickly. Other thing I thought was interesting about these events is that they, they are they're bookended by two parades. There's two parades happened on either side of this, this meal, on either side of this washing. The first parade was Jesus coming into Jerusalem and they welcomed him like a king. They, they laid palm branches down in front of him. The people followed him and they were singing and they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we have this scene and shortly after this scene, we have another parade. It takes place after Jesus is tortured and beaten and they've attached a cross to his back and he has to carry it by himself to a place of the skull. And there are people following him again, only this time they're saying, crucify him. And in between, we have this tender moment with Jesus and his disciples. And John draws our attention to the act of love and service that Jesus demonstrates by washing their feet. You see, he was, he, the Bible says he, he took off his outer garment. That was his rabbi garment. And, and he put it down. And he's probably there in the room with nothing more than a loincloth, which is actually the, gar- the garment of a servant. 
And so he, he, he takes off his rabbi garment and, and then he wraps a towel around himself and now he looks like a servant. This would have been an incredible sign of hospitality, not really incredible, quite ordinary sign of hospitality. If you had a guest coming to your house, you would see that their feet were washed when they came into the house. But as a host, you would never wash their feet. Uh -uh. It is such a lowly task of the first century. That the, 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 the servant, that the, the, the lowest servant in the estate would be the one that would do this job. In fact, first century rabbis said that if you had a Jewish servant, you, you would not ask him to do that job. But if you had a Gentile servant, they could do that job. That, that, that is how low of a task it was considered to be. And here's Jesus. Washing their feet. He, he, went, he took his garment off and he begins to do that which is so low. It requires so much humility. It was an act of self-sacrifice, an act of love and an act of humility. Culturally, it was absolutely unheard of for a rabbi to wash his students' feet. It's, it, it just did not happen. And that's why Peter objects to it so vehemently uh, in, in, in verse 8. Because we just don't do these things. And after he'd washed their feet, the Bible says he put his outer garment back on. And he reclines at his, at the, at his rightful place around the table. You see, what Jesus did in this one act is he's giving the disciples a picture of something that's coming. Because he's going to be stripped down in the hours ahead in, in the near future. And he's going to be put on a cross. And in his self-sacrifice and in his love and in his service he, he'll allow them to do that to him to die in the lowest way you could imagine because of his love for them and on that cross he would wash all of us all of us betrayers and deniers and cowards and then the father would release him to his rightful place and this time it's not at the table this time it's at the right hand of God and John seems to understand that what Jesus is doing here in this scene is an act of supreme love he loved them right to the end he loved them to the uttermost and washing their feet is precisely what what he had to do because he had come from God. Because that's what love looks like. They, uh, he probably got a bunch of their dirt on him while he left them clean. But that's what love looks like. In 1982, Mother Teresa saw a news story and immediately booked herself on a flight from India to Lebanon. She saw the story of 37 handicapped children, mentally and physically handicapped children, 
had been abandoned in a bombed out mental hospital and were stuck there because it was an act of war zone. She heard this story and the, her, 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 the heart of God just demanded that she do something. And I'm pretty sure she didn't even know what she was going to do in that moment, but she got on a plane, flew 4,000 kilometers from India to um, West Beirut. And when she got on the, on, on the ground there, she, she, she met um, a, a, a team of people. She met a team of, um, there, there were some military leaders, political leaders. There was a bunch of Catholic priests there, and the Red Cross had representatives there. And she'd had them all summoned. And she says to them, um, and she demands that t tomorrow, the next day, we're going in to that war zone and we're gonna get those 37 children out. And then and the priest said to her, uh, uh, sister, that's a nice idea. And she's like four foot nine. She was 71 years old. She looked at him, she said, it's not a nice idea. She said, it's our duty in Jesus' name to go get those kids. And then one after another, after another, those people, whether they're military people or political people, they said, it's impossible, we can't go in there. People who have gone in there have all died. It's an act of war zone, it's a violent place. We'll never get in there. And she just stood her ground. And finally, the, the, the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Lebanon was there and, 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 and he said, the, the only way we could possibly get into that area is that if we have a ceasefire order that, that both sides agreed to. And um, you see, the Israelis, Israelis were bombing West Beirut. They were just, and, and it had gone on for 90 days, more than 90 days. For more than three months, that area was just pelted with bombs. And Mother Teresa, or the, the ambassador said to Mother Teresa, he said, uh, so, so and we, we could never ever get a, a um, ceasefire order in this short of time. It just, it's just a, doesn't happen. And she looked at him, she said, God says it will happen tomorrow. Um, so just have the vans ready. We're going in. Then that evening, Mother Teresa, by the way, you can, I got this story online. You can, you Google it. It is, there's even some film, film footage there about this story. Um, at 9.30 at night, Mother Teresa and her, and the other nuns that were going to help her had, uh, took, took an hour to pray. That's just, that was their custom. And they got on their knees on the hard floor and they prayed for an hour. And after an hour, the other nuns got up and left and Mother Teresa just locked on. And she stayed on her knees to 10.30, to 11.30, 12.30. She stayed on her knees for seven hours. And all the while she's down there on her knees, you can hear bombs dropping. You can hear the wars going on. But at 4.30, for the first time in over three months, there was silence. And she got off her knees. And at seven o'clock, the ambassador, the US ambassador to Lebanon phoned her, said, sister, you got your miracle. And so they, they jumped in the vans and they drove to the hospital. Mother Teresa was the first one into the hospital. 
And here these kids were left for days without food, without water, or without hygiene. And, 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 and so, so she comes in the door, and there's a parade of, of, of nuns behind her. And, and um, she goes to the first little boy, and his face is covered with who knows what. And she takes his face in her hands, and she kisses him on the cheek. And she holds him, and he weeps, and he cries, and she just holds him. And one after another, all the other children, someone found them. And these, 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 these nuns, these sisters, they, they, they didn't hose them down, then hold them. They didn't make sure they were cleaned up before they, 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 could, they could be the arms of Jesus for them. Eventually, they got them all out. They got them in the vans, and they got them out of West Beirut. And then the... When the um, Red Cross people took over, their whole team came and they provided showers and you know care and clothes and place to sleep. Mother Teresa and, and, and her sisters were standing in a circle. There's a shot there of them. And they're looking at each other. They're smiling from ear to ear. And, and, and they're covered in these children's filth. And the caption at the bottom says, that's how you know this was a great day. That's how you know this was a great day. I love that story because that's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. To love well means that you don't shy away from the mess, someone's mess, because that's what God did. Though he was God, he did not think it. Of equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He came right down into our mess. He came right down. Even, even he knew that we would kill him. But he came to us because that's what love looks like. I'm going to invite Canyon and the team to come on up. Um, listen to this. N.T. Wright wrote this. He said, love is the language Jesus spoke, and, we're, and we are called to speak it so we can converse with him. It's the music God has written for all his creatures to sing. And we're called to learn it and practice it now so that, when, that we will be ready when the conductor brings down his baton. Love is at the very heart of the surprise of hope. People who truly hope as the resurrection encourages us to hope will be people enabled to love in a whole new way. Rick Warren says that we are most fully alive when we are helping others, and I think that's absolutely true. In fact, your little acts of kindness, your little acts of serving, your little acts of obedience as you're prompted to help other people out in your life it sets things in motion that you cannot see. I'll tell you this last story now. I'll pray. Um, two, of my, two of my grandkids live in Kelowna. Uh, one's 10 and one's 9. And um, the, for some reason, they I think it was part of a school project or something, they went to the, one of the food banks in town. And they were absolutely um, uh, surprised by how empty the shelves were. 
And this idea came to my granddaughter. You know what? We should, we should do something to fill those shelves. And she's, she's just 10, but she's got a business brain already. And she decides, okay, we're going to do two projects. In their apartment building, they were going to go um, do a bottle drive, just from you know, apartment to apartment to apartment. And they, they, they did a bottle drive, and they, they were going to raise some money. And half of everything they raised, they were going to go buy food and the food that they needed the most at the food bank, and they were going to fill it up. And then they decided uh, they could do one other thing. Uh, they, they love Kool-Aid stands, and so um, they, we, they were over visiting us and, uh, for a day and so they set up a Kool-Aid stand. They sat out there, and it was hot. They sat out there for eight hours selling really crappy Kool-Aid for two bucks a cup, like two bucks a cup. Like I'm thinking they made well over $200 and they took half of it. And so they got this bag, this plastic bag, see-through bag of money. By the way, when they were at the apartment building that they live in and they were asking for bottles and they told people, listen, we're gonna gonna make some money ourselves, but we're gonna give half away. Half of everything we collect is going to the food bank. There were people in their own building said, you know, I used to need the food bank. And I'm really proud of you kids. And, and one gave them 20 bucks and another gave them another 20 bucks. And, and these kids, they were true to their word. And so they go to the store and they, they purchased, the, you, you, my daughter-in-law filmed the whole thing. It was really, really adorable. And, and, and they filled this buggy full of food. And then they're at the checkout counter. And... Um, and the, 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 they get a total of how much it's gonna cost. And so my, my grandson, he's, carry, he's the money man. And he's carrying this plastic bag full of money, like full of bills and coins and everything. And he just pours it out on the, on the countertop there. And, and, um, and people around them start saying, what are you doing? What, what are they doing? Because the cashier said, well, what did, where did you get all that money? And again, my granddaughter, she's a salesman too. And so she's pitching this idea. This is what we're doing. Well, people all around them started pulling money out of their pockets, putting them on the countertop there so that the kids could go back and buy some more food. They're just kids. And it's just a silly story. I mean, it really happened, but it's not like it. it, But can you see how many people just wanted to get in on that one? And I promise you this, if you will look for an opportunity to serve your community, look for an opportunity to serve someone and lean into that person, I promise you, you're not the only one that will be there. Your act of faith will give others courage to lean in as well. Jesus taught us something this lesson throughout his ministry and on the last day of his life he taught us that if you want to find life you just got to give if you want to find life give find something to give and give it and you'll experience life let's pray Thank you, Jesus, that you showed us what love looks like in your life and in your death. 
give us eyes to see opportunities to put your love on display in the world that we live in, in the places that we work, in the communities that are, we call home. In Jesus' name, amen.